Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Good morning. Good morning. He is risen. He is risen indeed. You know, Jesus was talking to his disciples, and in Mark 8, 31, he says, it says, And Jesus began to teach his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. You know what Jesus just shared with his disciples? He just shared what we call the gospel. He just shared good news. He shared about his death, and he shared about his resurrection. And instead of rejoicing with him, Peter does something different. Um, Peter, for some reason, could not reconcile the words of Christ He couldn't reconcile them with the doctrine that he had concerning the Messiah. No, no, Jesus, the Messiah is not supposed to die. When the Messiah comes, he will be with us forever. He will live with us forever. And, you know, whenever our doctrine does not align with Jesus' words, what should we do? Change our doctrine, not try to change Jesus's. But that's what Peter tries to do with, uh, with Jesus, doesn't he? He rebukes him. And I think that that the reason that um, he does this is because he didn't hear the end about of it. That on three days, he was going to rise again. That didn't make sense to Peter. But he needs to understand this. And we need to understand this. Because believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the key to the Christian faith. Um, because when you understand that Jesus rose from the dead, it does something. It persuades the lost, it comforts the anxious, and it encourages those of us who are weary. And if you're like me, a lot of times when you hear, He is risen, you may say He is risen indeed with your mouth, but in your heart, even if you're a true believer, sometimes those uh, truths do not stir up true praise. And maybe that's where you're at this morning. Uh, Maybe that's how you came walking in here this morning. But hopefully by the time we leave, there will be an awakening in all of us that Jesus truly is alive. And so what I want to do is I want to pray as we're getting started here and ask that the Lord would awaken us and that we would once again uh, have the wonder of the resurrection. So would you pray with me as we're getting started here? Father, this morning we have been declaring your mighty and wonderful works. And, and they have they've produced in us praise and worship whenever we're able to really see what we're singing about. And um, Lord, we are a people that admit that we often drift away. We get sleepy. We get dull of hearing. And so I'm asking on behalf of all of us this morning that by your Holy Spirit, you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would remove blindness, that you would open our ears, 
that you would bring the dead to life, set captives free, renew our faith, and fill us with the hope of the resurrection. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the you will be you will be saved. This is a verse that is often quoted when we are teaching about the basics of salvation. And this is true. You will be saved if you believe that the resurrection of Jesus was a literal physical and historical event. This is important to understand that the resurrection was a literal, physical, and historical event. And I, and I bring that up because over the past 200 years, as modern man rejects the supernatural and, and miracles, there has been a movement within the church to try to take the resurrection and allegorize it, that the, bo- that the bodily of re- resurrection of Jesus didn't really happen, that it, it's not literal, it's not physical, it's not a historical event, but it's a, it's a wonderful idea that we have amongst us, like, like springtime. You know how springtime brings life when there's been death through the winter? That, that's what, what some would want us to believe, that basically the resurrection is just an allegory story that is taught, that, that's there to teach us that love triumphs over evil. That is nauseating, isn't it? That's nauseating to us who believe because it takes what Jesus did and cancels it as if it did not happen. Tim Keller writes, liberal Christianity has taught that it doesn't matter whether these events in the story of Jesus' life actually happened. All that matters is that Christians be good, ethical people who love others and make the world a better place. This is an effort to create a non-historical faith, one that isn't grounded in what God has actually done in history, but only in what we do and how we live. You get that? Only what we do and how we live. It claims that the original Jesus was simply a human teacher of justice and love. Only decades later did these miraculous supernatural elements get introduced into the legends about his life. And only then when he was presented as the Son of God who rose from the dead. In this telling, the original faith was not about miraculous historical events, but rather was simply an ethic of love. This non-historical narrative is the creation of a different religion altogether. Christianity's unique message that you are not that you are saved not by what you have to do, but by what God has done is swept away. The crushing weight of self-salvation is put squarely back onto the believer, whereas the historical gospel took that burden off of us. That's why I say that the, the resurrection must be, and it be believed and seen as a literal, physical and historical event. Because even the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to be there for, for the most of our time this morning. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, he says, If Christ has not been raised from the dead, 
your faith is futile, and look at this, and you are still in your sins. So the question we need to ask then is, did the resurrection really happen? And obviously there are many skeptics who would say no, and there's several arguments that they give against the resurrection. I'm not going to spend my entire time going over apologetics this morning. I want to touch on a few of these um, as we're moving forward. But just as Tim Keller mentioned, some argue that the resurrection is legend and folklore. That the resurrection is, is, is legend and folklore that was added to the gospel over decades and centuries as his followers embellished the life of Jesus. And you know what? This might be believable. It might be believable that the resurrection was added to the gospel hundreds of years, or 10, 20, 30 years later, if it weren't for 1 Corinthians 15. And I want to look at that with us this morning. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, almost all credible historians will say, and this is whether they're liberal, they're skeptical, whether they're atheists or they're right-wing conservatives, they will say that the 1 Corinthians 15 was written by the Apostle Paul about 25 years after the resurrection. So they're not doubting that the, the Apostle Paul wrote it. Let's look at verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. He's going to tell them, what the gospel was that he preached to them, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. In verses 1 and 2, Paul is being clear about three things. Number one, that there is only one gospel. Number two, that he always preached it. From the beginning, he's always preached the gospel. And number three, they received it. Verse 3 says... For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. In other words, he's saying, I didn't make it up or add to it. I preached to you what was given to me, what I received from others. Now, I want you to notice something on the next slide, that right after the word received, there is a colon. You know those dots? I actually had to look up if this was a colon or a semicolon. But I've got it highlighted on the next slide here. But this is the colon. Don't look it up right now. You can look it up. Uh, fact check me later. The same scholars, listen, who say that 1 Corinthians 15 also, uh, they all, was written by Paul, they also agree that everything after the colon, all the way through verse 7, did not originate with Paul. Paul did not make this up. He did not... Uh, add this. Rather, it is an ancient creed that was written as early as a few months to a couple of years after the crucif crucifixion of Jesus. That's, that's important to understand. All scholars, most, let me say most, because there might be one scholar that says, I don't agree with that, but most credible scholars would say that this creed that's between from the colon all the way to verse 7 is a creed that was written two months after Jesus rose from the dead up to about two years, somewhere in that time period. And this is, this is important to understand. Uh, let's look at what it says there after the colons. 
It says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. You see what's there in that first, in verse 3? The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ are recorded in this creed, written two months to two years after the crucifixion. And this is very significant for uh, anyone that's up on history. Because if you believe in Alexander the Great, and most of us do, and most of us should believe in him, you know what the earliest writings we have from him or of his, about his life? They are 300 years removed from him. Buddhists, do you believe that Buddha existed? 600 to 900 years past his life. Hinduism, 1,800 years past the writings of the Hindus. Christianity, a couple of months, up to two years. In other words, according to historical and literary evidence, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus has always been proclaimed in the gospel from the very beginning. The first believers, the first eyewitnesses, have always taught the resurrection. This is not something that was added as folklore. And some skeptics say, well, I don't believe the, the eyewitnesses existed. They were simply made up. That would be a second argument that I want to look at this morning. Um, the creed in 1 Corinthians 5 actually debunks this argument by naming eyewitnesses to these events. Let's look at verse 5. It says, And that Jesus appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. That's what Paul, Paul adds that right there. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So here in 1 Corinthians 15, a well-substantiated early public document written by Paul. Paul says that Jesus appeared to the apostles. He said he appeared to 500 others at one time. And this is the key, most of whom are still alive. You see what Paul's saying here? Now, again, historians say that this was written around 20, 25 years after the resurrection. So Paul writes this, and he's saying, if you don't believe my testimony, there are 500 people walking around here who saw what I saw, who have seen what I've seen. You can go talk to them. Scholars, and listen, scholars, this is what's interesting. Scholars do not question whether Paul is making this up. Um, they acknowledge that the eyewitnesses existed, which leads us to the third argument, that maybe the eyewitnesses fabricated the story. And you know what? That is a possibility. That really is a possibility, but it's unlikely because for a couple of, of reasons. Most first century Jews believed, or many of them believed in what is called a general resurrection. They believed that at the end of time, the righteous would be raised to life. That's why Martha, when she's at the tomb with Lazarus, tells Jesus, I know that he will rise on the day that, the day of, uh, of the, that the righteous are raised to, to life. But they did not believe in a singular resurrection in the middle of history. N.T. Wright, who is a highly respected New Testament scholar, argues that it would have neither occurred to Jesus' disciples to make up such an idea, 
in order to think they could get other Jews to believe in it if they told them. Told them. It would have required some extraordinary, impossible to deny, powerful evidence to get first century views, Jews to overcome all they had taught and to believe that Jesus was the resurrected Son of God. Another fact that makes it very unlikely that this story was made up by the eyewitnesses is the testimony of the women. Um, all the gospel accounts, every single one of them, record that the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection, resurrection were women. And that would not have been very convincing in their day. If they were trying to convince a crowd that Jesus had rose from the dead, they would not have said that women did it because their testimony was not even permissible in court. And yet, as we read our Gospels, there they are at the very beginning of the resurrection story, front and center. And so I was, again, I was surprised to find out that most New Testament scholars, liberal and conservative, generally agree on a point. They, they believe, or they don't believe, that the eyewitnesses were making up what they saw, to their knowledge. Now, the atheist uh, scholar would not say that the eyewitnesses saw Jesus resurrected, but they would say, we think that they saw something, but we don't know what it was, and they really believed in what they saw. So you've got to go to the next, um, the next argument, and it's, it's that maybe the eyewitnesses were deceived. Maybe they were deceived by what they saw. Maybe they went to the wrong tomb, well, if they went to the wrong tomb, they still said they saw the resurrected Savior, so that's not good. Maybe they were all hallucinating together, and that's no good because when you hallucinate, you hallucinate by yourself. When you have a dream, you have a dream by yourself. You don't hallucinate or have dreams in groups. So that, that's not a good uh, reason. And the last one, which is, i, I got to say it because it's been thrown out there, is some people believe that maybe Jesus tricked them. And he acted like he had died, and he just, on the third day, he came out and showed himself and said, I'm the resurrected Savior. Now, that is, that, is, uh, that is not, there's no way that happened. Two weeks ago, I uh, came home from a basketball, uh, the, the men's Final Four event, sat down and started watching the last game, um, and I took my shoe off, just took my shoe off. And all of a sudden, the, uh, the knuckle in my big toe started to hurt like crazy. I mean, it was like burning. And I, I, just out of nowhere, I'm at that age where I get hurt and I don't know how I hurt myself. I could barely walk in, in the house. I didn't know if I was going to be able to come to church, but I knew that if when I came to church, everyone was going to be like, James, are you okay? Nobody said that, not one person. <laughs> Fortunately, Pastor Terry was preaching that week. But I'm telling you, I could barely move on that. I could not have run. I couldn't have done anything uh, on that foot. Jesus was scourged from the back of the neck all the way down his legs. Blood poured out. He was pierced through in his hands. His feet hung on a cross for six hours or so. A spear was driven in his side. Is it possible that he got up out of that grave, rolled that 3,000-ton stone out of the way, pushed all the guards aside, 
and appeared to his disciples, I'm alive. All right, let's say that is true. I'll still worship that Jesus, right? I mean, he's awesome. Either way, but we know that that could not have happened. The gospel uh, is not supported by this. None of these objections that I just told hold up to scrutiny. So what is a reasonable explanation to what the disciples believed they saw? They saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. Listen, Jesus is alive. Jesus has risen from the, from the dead. I encourage you, if you're struggling with this, study the eyewitnesses. Study what I've shared. There's so much more that we could have, I could have said about that. But Jesus is alive. And because Jesus is alive, there's about five truths I want to share, how it affects our lives. Number one, if Jesus, since Jesus is alive, the gospel is true. The gospel is true. Jesus' resurrection marks what is called the great reversal. This is, this is something that we all need to understand. The great reversal. Since, since Jesus' resurrection, God's glory has been permeating throughout all creation, reversing the effects of the curse. It's, uh, Jesus says it's like a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It starts small, but as it grows, it spreads out and expands. That's exactly what it, it means when we, when we talk about the great reversal. We've talked about this in our uh, uh, Exodus series. Already, not yet. So Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of the reversal of the curse. And in the end, creation will be restored to perfect peace, to perfect harmony, and justice. At Jesus' resurrection, the great reversal was set into motion, which means truth number two, because Jesus lives, forgiveness is available. Think about that. Forgiveness is available because Jesus lives. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15 again. Verse 17, And if Christ has not been raised your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Verse 20, but Christ, in fact, has been raised from the dead. Therefore, our sins have been paid for. This is called the great exchange. This is called the great exchange, where Jesus exchanged places with us. He left heaven and came to earth so that we could have heaven. He became poor so that we could become rich. He became sin so that we might become righteous. He died so we can live. Our sins have been paid for. Not only that, but because Jesus lives, number three, change is possible. Change is, true change is possible. Have you ever wanted to change? Have you ever looked at yourself and said, I wish I could change? I wish I could be transformed. I wish I could become someone new. Well, because Jesus lives, because Jesus is alive, that is possible. 1 Corinthians 15, 9 through 10 says, Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But look at this. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. By what? By the grace of God, 
I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Paul calls himself unworthy to be an apostle. And in Ephesians 3.8, he says he's the very least of the saints. But by the grace of God, his life was turned around. He went from being a, a murderer of Christians to one of the most fruitful martyrs Christianity has ever known. And you know what? That's what Jesus does. That is a proof of the resurrection, changed lives. Many of us in this room can give testimony upon testimony of how I was this way and Christ came into my life and turned me around. There's some of us that can say, I was going this way, I came to Christ, and then I kind of went back this way. You know what Christ is saying? Come back. Come back. He who began a, a good work in you will bring it to completion until the end. That's what Jesus does for those who believe in his resurrection. By the Holy Spirit, the Father brings us to life and begins transforming us into the image of Jesus from the inside out. Well, because Jesus is alive, change is possible, but also resurrection is certain. Resurrection is certain. Listen, everyone needs to listen. Everyone in this room will be resurrected one day. Both believers and unbelievers. How do I know that? Because Jesus, who is alive, said so. He says it in John 5, verse 24. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear my voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Don't let anyone deceive you. When you die, it is not the end. You don't cease to exist, nor are you reincarnated into a mosquito or a, a butterfly. You don't cease to exist. When you die, you are still you. And Jesus has spoken to reveal what happens in the future, that everyone is going to resurrect from the dead. Your resurrection is as certain as your birth and your death. And we will either experience the resurrection life, or we will, as Jesus said, experience the resurrection of judgment, depending on how we responded to the message of the gospel. Number five, because Jesus lives, death is defeated. Death is defeated. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51 says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Paul's saying, there are going to be, when Jesus returns, there are going to be believers who are still alive. When he says asleep, he's talking about death here. Verse 52, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body 
must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on, the, on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, this life that we're living in, uh, it's dark at times. It's, it's difficult. It can be depressing. There are some of us in our Reach Life congregation that are struggling with chronic illnesses, uh, chronic pain. Uh, some of us are, are dealing with chemical imbalances that are going on in our bodies. Uh, many of us have experienced death. We've lost loved ones. You know, we all dwell, all of us in here, all dwell in aging, broken vessels. And the thing that's, uh, that's just very, uh, in some ways, frustrating to me is no matter how hard I fight to try to reverse the effects of death by a good diet or, or working out or getting good sleep. I mean, and we need to do all those things. But no matter how hard I try to defeat uh, aging, it's, it comes anyway. And it's, death is inevitable. Humanly speaking, we cannot stop death. But the resurrection of Jesus promises that he has. And that because he's done that, those of us who have put our faith in him, we will receive new bodies indestructible bodies, free of sickness, free of wrinkles, free of aging, free of bad breath, free of death. It's important for us to understand in light of the resurrection that our physical suffering is temporary. And because Jesus lives, we have hope in the midst of extreme suffering. Extreme suffering. I want to share a, a little testimony by a pastor named Jeremy Treat, who was a missionary to Kenya, a very poor area in Kenya. I'm just going to read the account. He walked into it to a poor village. He walked into it following a stream of open sewage that flowed right by shelters made of pieces of wood and dried mud. He saw many children playing in the mud right in the sewage with no clothes on. He went by a 12-year-old girl who his guide said was a prostitute. As he was feeling overwhelmed, he heard the first sounds of his destination. As the noise grew in volume, he recognized it as human voices. Finally, he came to a building little more than a shack, and inside there was a church service. About 70 people were singing at the top of their lungs, praising God. Arms raised in worship, tears, smiles, prayer, praise. What could have possibly given people living in that darkness such hope and even joy? Treat wrote, in, in that impoverished slum, I knew that the kingdom had come. Not yet in the fullness of God's future promise, but it, it was there in the midst of the most horrific suffering 
and brokenness I've ever seen. He saw that the transforming power was both individual and corporate. God's reign was breaking in and transforming the lives of real people. These people had nothing, yet they knew that in Christ they had everything. And yet the people were not simply achieving a tranquil inner psychological state. God's love was poured out on them, and it flowed outward through them. They were not content to leave their community in its disempowered, miserable state. Let me read that again. They were not content to leave their community in its disempowered, miserable state. Throughout the day, I heard stories of how these people loved and served others in the community. He concluded, What I saw in that little shack was a glimpse of the same power that will one day renew all creation. Because Jesus lives, death is defeated. And the last one, the greatest one, because Jesus lives, we will be with him forever. That is the greatest promise of the resurrection. Um, look, at, uh, look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. Verse 14 says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Verse 16 says, For the Lord himself, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of, of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. This truth is, is probably the most important one, that we will be, be with the Lord forever. Because you know, there are, there are some who want a kingdom without a king. There are some who want a, the benefits of the kingdom without there being the benefactor. But not so for the church, for the true church of Christ. Those who are truly His. Heaven is not heaven if Jesus is not there. Not only being there, but reigning there. We want the Lord to be there. It's like in Exodus 33, when Moses is talking to the Lord, he says, uh, Lord, if, if your presence doesn't go up with us, if you're not going to be with us when we go into the promised land, I don't want to go in there. The promised land will not be the promised land without your presence. And in, in the same way, we, the church, when we are truly awakened, we realize that Jesus, he is our heaven. Why is Jesus our heaven? Because Jesus is our king. Jesus is our Savior. He is our Redeemer. He's our Creator, our Comforter, our Counselor. He's our Prince of Peace. He is our Pearl of Great Price. He is our Deliverer, our Strong Tower. Jesus is our Teacher. He's our Master. He's our Leader and Commander, our High Priest, our Advocate our mediator. Jesus is our cornerstone. Jesus is the Lamb of God who's taken away our sins. He is our good shepherd. He is the living word. Jesus is our rock. He is our fortress. He's our provider, our protector, our living water, our living hope. He is the true vine. 
He is the bread from heaven. Jesus is the bridegroom, and we are his bride. Jesus is the man of sorrows. He is the Passover. He is our sacrifice. Jesus is God. Jesus is our resurrection. And you know, Jesus is already with us. By faith, we see Jesus. But one day it will be face to face. Christ's kingdom has already come, and it is advancing in the lives of his people. It is advancing all throughout the world because Jesus lives. We know that the gospel is true, we know that forgiveness is available. We know that change is possible. We know that resurrection is certain. We know that death is defeated. And we will always be with Jesus. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen? Amen.